Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobna Xavier, and I'm one of your co-hosts. In each new episode, we feature a new book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with the author. What happens when the digital world meets Sufism? This is the question raised in the exciting new book, Cyber Sufis, Virtual Expressions of the American Muslim Experience, published by One World Academic by Professor Robert Rosenhall, a professor of Islamic studies and South Asian religions and the founding director of the Center for Global Islamic Studies at Lehigh University. This exhilarating new book explores how the Nyatsi order, one of the oldest Sufi communities in North America, under the leadership of Ziyaniyat Khan, has utilized the digital world in their pedagogical practices, ritual performances, and social engagement. By investigating the ways in which this one particular American Sufi community utilizes the cyber world, Rosenhall challenges the ways in which cyber Sufis create complex identities that evade easy categorizations of Sufism, Islam, and New Age spirituality while also signaling to the ways in which much of the noted digital transformations are in some ways not novel, but rather rooted in historical instances, such as in the case of South Asian Sufism of the Shishtis that influences the Nyati order. Moreover, the book is also deeply sensitive of and models the ways in which to conduct digital ethnography and highlights the significance of studying digital religions broadly. The book is accessible and thus serves as a great teaching resource, both as as parts and as a whole, um, especially for undergraduate classes on digital religions or American Islam and or Sufism. The book will be of serious interest to scholars and students engaging digital Islam, American Islam, and also Sufism. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Robert Rosenhall. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Cyber Sufis, Virtual Expressions of the American Muslim Experience. We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies to ask our guests to tell us something about their intellectual journey and what brought them to writing this book. So I wonder if you could um, let us know what inspired you to become a scholar of Islamic studies and especially working on Sufism. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I should start by saying, uh, you know, kudos to you and all the others who are uh, doing this great service to the field with new books in Islamic studies. Um, I don't listen to all of them, but I listen to as many as I can. And it's a really useful platform to meet an author and to sort of start a conversation that then continues in other sort of forums. So well done to you and, and everyone involved. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. Um, where to begin? Um, I didn't think I was going to write this book. I had certainly hadn't anticipated writing this book. Uh, and it really emerged out of my coursework at Lehigh University over the last decade. I mean, it had some antecedents. My first book, which was a you know, greatly revised version of my dissertation uh, at Duke University, Islamic Sufism Unbound, was a deep dive into a particular tariqah, a particular Sufi community. Um, that straddles the national borders of what is now India and Pakistan. And that book uh, was both a textual analysis of Urdu text and looking at three particular sheikhs in that order and how they envisioned the modern world and thought about the new nation state of Pakistan. But it was also very much a ethnography of living Sufism and the way in which the master-disciple relationship functions in the 21st century. And already there, and you know, this ethnography, the fieldwork for this book was, uh, gosh, it seems like a hundred years ago, but late uh, late '90s into the first several years of the new millennium, and already in you know 2000, 2001, 2002, I was seeing you know uh, sort of tentative ways in which uh, Chisti Sabri sheikhs were using emergent media technologies to communicate with their disciples, many of whom didn't live in Pakistan. This is, like so many Sufi orders in the 21st century, a global transnational tariqah. And so technology uh, became a way to, to bridge those gaps within the community. So this new book, Cyber Sufis, again, 
I had thought about technology and digital media technologies in their infancy in the early 2000s. And then at, in my coursework at Lehigh over the years, I've just found the web and digital resources to be a really interesting uh, add-on resource uh, for students. I, I, I only have undergraduate students at Lehigh. But uh, you know, in my courses on uh, Sufism and Islam, I use all sorts of materials, uh, primary texts, scholarly monographs, we read poetry, we read novels, and increasingly, I also send students out into the wild west of the, uh, the virtual spaces because that's where they live. And um, some of these early projects, um, you know, go out and tell me what you find, uh, made me understand a few things. Students, A, don't know how to read these resources intelligently. They don't know how to sort of, there's no critical apparatus too often for students to evaluate and interpret these digital sources. And also, um, having said that, they respond to these spaces and have done some very interesting work uh, in my courses, looking at particular communities, particular individuals, the way in which Islam is mediated in cyberspace, all of which led me to start asking, how do we think about this and how might I uh, try to read these new digital spaces through a, a scholarly lens. So that's the background to that book project. Um, and that's very fascinating because it's like it's, um, submitting to the fact that your students live in this world. Um, but did you struggle as either an educator or as a researcher trying to like navigate um, doing, you know, the study of the digital world, the cyber world. Um, you know, I have grad students who take on projects of doing digital ethnography. And one of the things I struggle with is trying to actually um, help them do that work, do that research. What are issues of ethics or consent? And, you know, how do you do uh, digital ethnography online? Um, are those concerns that you had as a scholar entering this field? Of course they are. And again, this is a, a evolving, uh, emerging and rapidly expanding uh, scholarly field with all sorts of questions. I mean, this book raises more questions than it than it than it answers, and it's really for me a kind of first take experiment in how do we think about these spaces. Having said that, um, uh, I wrote this book in a period of my career where I was doing a lot of um, uh, administrative work. You know, the trajectories and daily realities of our lives as scholars are shaped by our own institutions, and for the last decade, I've been. Uh, directing a center for global Islamic studies and even fundraising uh, in Malaysia and elsewhere to try to build a program. So my thought here was I'll do a book that allows me to do a kind of ethnography, but in a time when I can't travel as much. Uh, and as soon as I started re digging a little deeper, uh, I realized actually there is a quite expansive and rapidly changing scholarly archive in the field of, of digital religion. And there are all kinds of methodological and theoretical questions that scholars are exploring. Uh, this scholarship, you know, emerged really out of media studies and communication studies, but now is attracting the attention, uh, especially of a new generation, as you suggested, of graduate students, students in um, cultural anthropology, in history, journalism, uh, and most recently, religious studies. So there are all kinds of, of really pressing questions, and um, I, I've tried to, to contribute to that debate and mark new space by sort of going into the cyber Sufi realm. But uh, again, I, I'm trying to, um, to tap into this deeper scholarly network. And one of the most interesting and exciting things about this work is it's, uh, as, I've, as I've done the research and the writing, and had conversations, I've really met a whole new group of scholars outside of my previous network, people that are doing this work from a variety of different disciplinary perspectives. And I should say that um, we're following up uh, in April of 2020 uh, with a conference at Lehigh uh, that we're tentatively calling Cyber Muslims Mapping Islamic Networks in the Digital Age. And it's basically an opportunity to bring to campus uh, a range of people whose work I've been reading over the last several years and who have shaped my, my thinking in the field. So we've got 17 scholars from a wide variety of personal backgrounds and disciplinary perspectives that are all thinking about cyber Islam, digital Islam, uh, and reading it through very different methodological and theoretical lenses. So I'm learning a lot as I've uh, now joining this conversation. 
And one of the things you are asking the readers or, you know, um, um, I'm trying to get us to think about in your book is to think about how the cyber world is engaging with um, Muslims, specifically in the context of America. And the key intervention is kind of the critique of modernity that you're having us think about. So can you explain that a little bit more? And this is something that you do in um, kind of chapter one and chapter two of your book. Yes. Uh, You know, I'm not, I'm trained as an Islamicist, as a South Asianist, as a comparativist, and really as a outing myself, a closet anthropologist. (laughs) And again, so that that wasn't a book that I anticipated writing. And one of the exciting things about moving into new spaces is is meeting new people, expanding your horizons and thinking about, um, uh, you know, the, the work in very different ways. So one of the things I had to do besides acquaint myself with the scholarship on digital religion, it was really to up my game and my reading on Islam in America. And so I've, you know, um, been really influenced and, and impressed with the scholarship of people like Zarina Graywall and Edward Curtis and Gumbiz Ghanaia Basiria, um, Sylvia Chan Malik, Swadab Lukbir, uh, a host of others. It's just off the top of my head. Uh, and, you know, these are people that are looking at Islam from a variety of different perspectives and really bringing a new lens to the discipline. Uh, my own work, even previously, I've been interested in modernity, that sort of catch-all, utterly ambiguous uh, signifier that means so many different things to so many different people in so many different ways. In the book, I, uh, this is a book, by the way, you know, written um, for an introductory audience. Um, it really honestly is a book that I felt I needed or could use in my own undergraduate courses at Lehigh. And so I sort of turned down the theoretical uh, uh, lens uh, on this in this particular book. I've done, I've theorized the web and these spaces in, uh, in particular ways, but there's a lot more that could and should be done there. But modernity, I don't try to offer any sort of uh, catch-all detailed analysis of the term, most particularly because I don't think that can or, or should be done. I'm looking instead at the ways in which these particular groups of Muslims and Sufis uh, use that language, um, manipulate those terms, and then make sense of, you know, lived, embodied, material, even political life in the 20th, 21st century in their own very diverse and particular ways. There, there is no meta narrative for modernity. There's no, you know, one size fits all style to explain the term or how it functions. I'm instead proceeding with the, you know, the assumption that let's look at how these communities operate in the ground, on the ground, and in these virtual spaces, and how they might understand and construct modernity using their own history, their own language in very particular ways. And this is the same approach that you're bringing to the case study that you're offering us, which is really looking at Sufi communities in America. So why is it important to kind of evade any categorizations and kind of destabilize binaries when thinking about Sufi communities um, in America? Yes, indeed. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a big question. Um, And, you know, it speaks to the phenomenon of Islam in America writ large beyond Sufism, that these are, you know, what Bruce Lawrence called kaleidocultural communities. They are, you know, incredibly diverse polymorphous, polyvalent, uh, and, and have as, uh, individual Sufi communities, their own particular histories, their own spiritual heroes, their own notion of sacred geography and space, their own self-imaginings. Uh, and I think I ended up writing about the Anayati community, the Anayati order, uh, for a, n- a number of reasons. I, this is not the book that I pitched to my publisher, believe it or not. And, um, all of us sort of discover what we're doing in the process of writing. But I had anticipated writing a sort of broader survey to look at a number of American Turuk. And I should, should note, uh, you know, if you Google Sufism online, God help you, because you find all kinds of things, a lot of self-stylized Sufi masters who are, you know, speaking for the tradition, often selling the tradition, packaging the tradition, um, and it's very difficult, especially for students new to the material, to navigate those the spaces of the web and to make sense of who is speaking. So what I did in the book was narrowed the 
lens to look at institutional turuk. These are Sufi orders with histories, uh, you know, that are traced to immigration in America. These are diasporic Sufi networks that are truly global. Uh, and as I started doing that survey work, uh, I got a ton of material on a, on a dozen plus American Sufi communities, each with their own institutional histories. And I was writing along and, and you know, doing this ethnographic work, living in these spaces, communicating in many cases with webmasters and sheikhs and sheikhs about what they were doing. Uh, and then January 1st, 2016, Pirzia. Inayat Khan, who's the contemporary leader of the Inayati community, the Inayati Sufi order in North America, he has a webcast uh, in which he announces that the group will be renaming. He forms the Inayati order. Uh, he announces that um, there's an overhaul of its entire institutional structure. It's, we might say it's bureaucratic architecture uh, and a new website. And so overnight, uh, the spaces that I had been looking on, the websites, some of the digital media spaces from the United Order, were totally transformed. And as I started to write, um, you know, one chapter became two and two became three. And then the question is, given the limits of space and time, what do I do with all these other groups? So as you've noticed in chapter seven, I try to pull back after the case study conversation, I provide some very brief vignettes on seven other American Sufi orders, hoping that readers will go into and explore those spaces themselves, and then try to pull back and say, okay, what is the broader patterns and trajectories here that we're looking at? So the Inayati order is interesting for a lot of reasons. It has South Asian Indo-Muslim roots. It is, in fact, the oldest Sufi order in the West, in both Europe and North America, and has, over the last decades, moved in, in very interesting directions. There are multiple groups, by the way, in Europe and North America that claim the legacy of the order's founder, Pir Anayat Khan. Pir Anayat Khan lived from 1882 to 1927, born in Baroda, India, in Gujarat. And then uh, from 1910 to 1926, as a musician, toured Europe and North America and began giving lectures on Sufism. Um, and in 1918 in London, he establishes the Sufi order, which then goes on and, and takes root in, in, in varied ways in Europe and North America. And over the years, that group has expanded and moved into very different spaces. This is a hereditary Sufi order. So Inayat Khan's son, uh, Pir Vilayat Inayat Khan, and now the current teaching sheikh in the order, Pir Zia Inayat Khan, are this hereditary blood um, male connections in this order. Again, there are other groups that claim the legacy to Anayat Khan uh, throughout Europe, North America, and the world. So it's a very, it's a sprawling group. It's a very diverse group. It's firmly rooted in the West, and much of its legacy has been trying to bridge East and West. And one of the ways that Anayat Khan and his son, Pir Vilayat Anayat Khan, tried to bridge those cultural, intellectual, and spiritual spaces was by bringing, by really communicating to their audience in terms that were familiar. And in the process, um, promoting a sort of universalist, even perennialist version of Sufism that didn't require people to convert to Islam. And for precisely that reason, the Unites over the years have been critiqued both inside and outside the community as, you know, not being, quote, real Muslims or, quote, real Sufis. Uh, and if you look at what Pirzia is bringing to the community to, to today, the way he's reimagining these spaces, the emphasis he's placing on ritual practice, uh, on identity, and, you know, the public face of the community, I'm arguing that he's re essentially returning this tradition to its Indo-Muslim um, and Chisti Sufi roots in very interesting ways. So the very, uh, the complexity and the change over time of this order remind us very quickly that our fixed, rigid scholarly categories uh, simply don't work. They don't map nice, nicely and neatly onto these changes. And here I'm not breaking new ground. Uh, William Rory Dixon in his book, Living Sufism in North America, made much the same arguments 
as he's interviewing Sufi teachers uh, in in Canada and the United States, uh, you know, he's noticing the really remarkable diversity of these institutions and these communities and the multiple varied ways that they make sense of their own Muslim and Sufi identities. Uh, so very quickly, I'm arguing our, our rigid, fixed, firm taxonomies, you know, defining Sufis as either non-Islamic, Sharia-minded, un-Islamic, partly Islamic, sort of Islamic, um, they don't map nicely and neatly into many of these communities. And that's true of, of the Anayati community more than most. Um, there's just no simple way to describe and define how they understand themselves, how they see themselves, how they live in the world, and how they're responding to the complexities and contradictions of, of modernity itself. And I think, um, you know, the discussion that you guide us through in chapters four, five, and six, um, and in the whole focus on the Inyati order is really one of the most fascinating components of the book, because um, you're giving us kind of tangible examples um, and um, and it's very exciting. So I wonder if we could talk about some of these details um, and maybe we could talk about some of the rituals that you noticed in terms of virtual practices that you were viewing um, that the Nyati order used um, the, you know, the World Wide Web as a platform to, uh, to uh, cultivate rituals um, and what some of those rituals were. And if you had a sense of who was tapping into or uh, participating in these rituals virtually and what that meant. Sure. Yes. Uh, I mean, maybe the first thing to say is um, as soon as you write a book like this, um, you realize it's not going to be relevant for very long. And by that, I mean, these are living, dynamic, very fluid spaces. And a lot of the links and a lot of the images and even some of the narrative that I spotlighted and talked about in the book, it's already changed. Uh, In the last several months alone, you know, Web pages are hyperlinked, they're, media, they're hyper-mediated, and, and they're constantly in flux and flow. So just to take an example, in chapter four, which is really trying to understand the use of language and image uh, on these on the Anayati web pages and social media sites, on page 88, I have this image from the link Our Lineage that is, I thought resonant, uh, effective, and, and really powerful in what it's communicating. It's an image of Pirzia playing the flute in front of the shrine of Nizamuddin Aliyah, a renowned um, 12th and 13th century sheikh uh, who's buried in um, the Nizamuddin Basti in South Delhi. And in that picture, Pirzia is seated uh, next to a number of prominent teachers and disciples, uh, including a Chisti master um, from Afghanistan, Syed Ahmed Shah. And he's he's playing the flute in front of the shrine of a, you know, a medieval Sufi sheikh in this order. His father and his grandfather are buried uh, in tombs nearby. And in the background, we see disciples, mostly Europeans, dressed in typical South Asian uh, Islamicate clothing, and that image alone is really tries to bridge present and past. I write a lot about it. I thought it was fascinating. And I got online a couple of weeks ago uh, and it's gone. <laughs> so, so much for no one's asking my permission, of course, to. to right. <laughs> but this is one of the challenges. And there's a whole conversation to be had here about methodology. How do you document these sites? How do you write about these sites? Do you archive these spaces and talk about changes over time? I've argued that I'm essentially, I think of this book as a screenshot of a particular moment in time with the understanding as soon as it was published that it would be changing continuously. Um, But just to answer your question, one of the fascinating questions in digital religion writ large is ritual, ritual practice, ritual performance. And, you know, much has been written over the centuries of of ritual and how it functions and how it works in people's lives. You know, it is embodied, it is effective, um, both affect, affective and effective in promoting and uh, personal um, um, transformational spiritual change. It's also most often done in community. So ritual is a, you know, a glue that binds together communities of faith. It's absolutely true for Sufism. But what happens 
when the intimacy and the intensity of the Sufi master disciple relationship and the the bodily embodied dynamics of Sufi ritual practice of mujahada of spiritual striving are suddenly projected into virtual spaces. What can and maybe more importantly, what cannot should not be done and said online. And I've argued in the book that um, while there are interesting experiments with virtual practice, it's here where I think Sufis have sort of pulled the reins back um, on, on cyber spaces. Uh, you know, technology is changing very quickly, and I'm certainly not going to be foolish enough to project where it's going in the near future and, you know, next 20 years. But undoubtedly, uh, our, our digital platforms will be more ubiquitous, faster, uh, more visceral. And you can imagine a time when it's really maybe possible to experience ritual in a particular way. But what's lost in that transition, in that transaction? So in, in chapter five, I outline some very unique inayati rituals, some of them universalists that are trying to uh, symbolically and ritually incorporate Islamic Sufism into a much broader conversation with other mystical traditions. And then other practices of meditation and prayer that are deeply grounded in Shisti Sufi tradition, even though the language may may have changed. And what I'm noticing in those spaces is that the Anaites are defining who they are on this website. Um, and part of that definition is has to be about ritual. And they allow some sense of it, some, you know, to borrow the Sufi language, some lock or or taste of ritual practice. For example, there are prayers um, that are described online, um, even to an extent where, you know, in meditation practices, you know, sit in these sorts of spaces, uh, assume these sorts of postures, um, and say these words. So there's a kind of uh, hinting at the, the daily lived embodied experience of ritual practice. But it's not DIY Sufism. I think they very intentionally do not have, you know, video instruction on ritual performance, on zikr performance, for example. Uh, they do not have a, you know, dial-in um, chat room page to ask questions about how best to do things. There's an insistence that these are incredibly powerful. These are central to our identity as inayati practitioners. If you want to join us, come and join us offline. And every, time and again, especially around ritual practice, these spaces are trying to encourage potential converts, allies, interested viewers to circle back to the living community. Because at least in the, at this point in the early you know, 21st century, the technology is not sufficient. And I think that the very question of ritual practice online is unsettling and anxiety producing for Sufi practitioners, because it really threatens to unravel, again, the intimacy, the intensity of the rigorous and routinized ritual practice that is so central to Sufi, um, you know, experience. So there's a lot of, of ambiguity and anxiety. They, they point to ritual, they provide uh, a circumscri circumscribed spaces for ritual practice, but the full enchilada, <laughs> the full experience is intentionally not possible in these places. Now, there are certain Sufi orders, uh, the, the Naqshbandi Haqqani Sufi order, for example, um, uh, under Sheikh Hisham Kabani, they allow bayat or virtual initiation. Uh, there's a video, there's a, a description of text, a transliteration of text, and a person can theoretically, and even more than theoretically, literally take initiation online with the understanding and insistence that now it's time to, again, circle back, join the local community, that it's not, that it's necessary, but not sufficient to have taken virtual by it. The Nakshmandi Haqqanis are very savvy with, and very ambitious with their use of digital technologies. No other group that I've seen has gone anywhere near that far uh, with the virtual initiation to say nothing of virtual ritual practice. So I, I find this question um, really interesting, and I think that these are 
spaces and places and technologies that are evolving quick enough that Sufi teachers see the utility of these sites for preaching, for teaching, for community building, for identity making, and maybe for ritual practice. But it's ritual where, you know, they're least eager and willing to sort of unleash the full capabilities of digital media technologies. And I think there's a reason. Yeah. And I mean, I think even with this conversation, there's like a, there's a continual tension that kind of highlight throughout, there's like a push and pull factor where you know that there is a threshold that cannot be crossed. And it kind of comes back to fundamental, um, like the essence that some people may understand Sufism to be, which I think is an important conversation um, that I want to have towards kind of the end. But another, since we're still talking about um, the middle chapters and the work that you're doing there, another thing that I found really fascinating was this idea of gender. Um, And I think gender in the conversation of, you know, American Islam and American Sufism is very, very important. But did you notice at all um, that in like the platform of the digital world um, offered some kind of egalitarian possibilities that perhaps a lived physical reality may not offer when it came to to gender inclusion, perhaps? Oh, yeah. And again, there, too, there's no sort of one sweeping statement I could make about um, Sufi identity or gender boundaries and practices uh, in in these communities online or offline. I mean, to be specific, the Anayati order has long been um, uh, inclusive in every sense of the word, uh, in, you know, to the sense where you don't have to convert to be to join the community to take initiation. Uh, and from the beginning, Hazrat Anayat Khan's earliest converts and disciples were prominent women, first in the UK and then in the United States. Uh, and uh, one thing I find very interesting is that um, uh, Hazrat Anayat Khan had um, uh, two children, uh, Nur Nisa Anayat Khan, his daughter, who was born in 1914, and then Dilayat Anayat Khan, son, who inherited the order in 1916. But um, pondering and thinking seriously about Nur Nisa Anayat Khan's life, uh, really speaks loudly about the positioning of, and the expression and experience of gender in this order. She has now been officially uh, recognized as a Shekha in the order itself. If you click on the Our Lineage webpage, at the top of the of the, of the homepage of the Anayati Order's website, there's an About uh, link. If you click on that, it says Our Lineage, and it gives you um, a sense of how they understand their own history. So there are, for example, silsilas, shudras, uh, spiritual family trees that highlight the multiple Sufi orders that Hazrat Anayat Khan was uh, initiated into and part of with the Chisti Sufi order at the beginning. And then there are biographies with photographs and narrative about four figures. So the founder, Anayat Khan, his two children, Nuranisa and Pir Vilayat, and then the current teacher, Pir Zia Nayat Khan. Nuranisa Nayat Khan, um, again, is recognized in these official chains of transmission as a Nayati teacher. The, uh, the website gives you quite a lot of information about her really quite incredible life. Um, she was executed in Dachau. Um, by the Nazis as after being part of the French resistance uh, and, and was deeply influenced um, both by her um, grand, her father's uh, South Asian and Su- Islamic Sufi past, but also, you know, she was thoroughly westernized and modernized in the, in the context and contours of her own life. So her positioning in the order uh, speaks to how gender is uh, is uh, articulated and experienced in this group. Um, there are very prominent female teachers uh, around the country and, a, and, a, and across the world in the Anayati tradition. Um, one wonders if this will remain a hereditary Sufi order. Again, it's passed from grandfather to father to son. Pirzia has two children, a son and a daughter. And um, he's, he's quite a young man. Pirzia was born in 1971. Uh, but you know, there. You can, as a scholar, it's interesting to anticipate uh, the flux and flow of a community. I wonder myself if this will remain a hereditary Sufi order, and about the possibilities of women taking official um, positions as leaders uh, and even as the the grand sheikh, as it were, in this Sufi order. So, uh, 
and and the web pages itself on the website and its multiple multi-layered links it's very clear the prominence that women play in this group it's signaled in every way through um, the makeup of the boards the the board of trustees the corporate uh, and bureaucratic organization is heavily populated by women um we see the visual cues of the importance of women as teachers and guides in this order and also as disciples. Um, and so this is an example of a transnational global Sufi order now rooted in America that is um, open and accessible and, and gender inclusive in every way. As we look around the world and we look online at different Sufi groups, those positions, those boundaries are negotiated and constructed and authenticated in very different ways. And here too, there's just no simple one size fits all way to describe gender and gender positioning in Sufi communities. And another um, um, way that you also engage the community online is through this idea of social engagement. And I was really fascinated by it because one of the things you use um, in analyzing this is moments in which um, Pierzia is responding to Facebook posts in terms of things that's happening in the American political context. Um, so I wonder if you could say more about this, especially in a world in which I think social media um, and uh, I think the internet generally has been really important for a lot of people who are interested in social activism or social justice. Um, and there's kind of a lot of responses and critiques around the role of being an activist online. Um, but here to see a Sufi teacher like Pirzia, um, also utilizing that platform to get his students to think about social justice in a particular way, be it about um, the Women's March or the presidency or anything like that. So can you say a little bit more about um, how Pirzia is utilizing that platform and what it tells us about kind of ways in which we as scholars can think about social justice online? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, if you look at the scholarship on digital religion writ large, it really, you know, it's it's voluminous and growing, but it's also, you know, 10 years old. You know, it's really hard to remember. And for my students, impossible to imagine how, you know, we're talking about 10, 11 years, you know, the iPhones invented in 2000, I'm not mistaken. Um, and there's been a, just a lot written about the, the potentialities and the limits of virtual networks and cyber spaces for all sorts of ends. I mean, all of these communities that I'm thinking about and looking at in the book are, you know, building a religious community in an American cultural space, but they're also politically engaged to various degrees and in various ways. Um, it should be noted that the, the Chisti Sufi order uh, emerging out of South Asia has a long history of avoiding political spaces. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to the general rule, but Nizamuddin himself, the, the, the medieval master that I invoked before, had a very famous saying, when the sultan enters by the front door, I leave by the back. And it was very much the case that the Chisti Sufi order, multiple branches, Chisti Nizamis and Chisti Sabris generally avoided the allure and the pull of co court culture and political engagement and involvement. Now that changes, especially for the Chisti Sabris, as I write in my first book, with modernity in the post-colonial era, they become much more politically active. So Chisti Sabri Sheikhs, for example, um, Hajim Dadala Muhajir Mekki, um, Rashid Ahmed Gengohi, they were involved in the Chisti Sabri Tariqa, but they were you know, in founders of the Dioband Madrasa, political to the core. Uh, and the three Sheikhs I write about in my first book were writing about politics, imagining Pakistan and, and as a homeland for Muslims. So there's a tension there. But the general point is that Chistis have a long legacy of avoiding politics, uh, at least in public spaces. And I think that was very much the case for Pierzia uh, uh, and his predecessors um, and, until quite recently. And so one of the things I noticed even in the, in, the, in the few years of doing my research, just living in these spaces and watching these spaces, is that something has recently changed and tentatively, but in, in interesting ways, especially on digital media uh, uh, platforms like Facebook, Pierzia has made political comments. It's You don't see them as much um, on the official institutional community website. So it's these, you know, the dynamic spaces of digital media where he's interacting with his followers, but also a public audience where he has talked about things like, you know, Standing Rock, and as you mentioned, the Women's March on 
Washington, about um, Parkland, Florida, the shootings at, at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, um, you know, issues around um, global warming, and even the election of Donald Trump and sort of raging Islamophobia in America. He has taken to digital media platforms, especially social media platforms, to make comments, um, quite pointed comments, to encourage his disciples to keep the faith, to understand that the moral and ethical um, behavior that they're cultivating through ritual practice has public and even political implications. There's a way to live in the world beautifully and respond to crisis, respond to difficulty, to respond to challenges. Whether we call this, you know, political activism or at least political awareness uh, and political engagement is is up for for question. And again, here too, no one size fits all um, taxonomy or model to describe the way very different Muslim communities in America, but certainly Sufi communities in America, are engaging the political. Um, the Chisti, uh, so the Anayati order has been tentative in this space, but I don't think it's an accident in the era of Donald Trump that Pierzia has felt the need to respond, the need to speak out, uh, even in you know circumscribed space. Um, and in chapter seven, you're kind of shifting us and thinking about, okay, well, I've spoken about this one particular community, but there's a lot of these other communities that you provide these, um, as you call it, vignettes, about seven other Sufi groups. And you use this as a, a springboard to start kind of thinking about, um, you know, I guess pro- projecting or providing some kind of considerations for the future. Um, you know, what what are um, some things to consider about Sufi communities that are on the dig- in, in the digital world. And so what are some of these things that um, for maybe those of us who are interested um, that we should consider when we're thinking about Sufi communities or we can anticipate is going to impact Sufi communities' presence online in the future, in the coming decades, or maybe even the years, because things seem to be changing really fast. Yes. Yes, indeed. Changing very fast. And as I said already, <laughs> much of my book is irrelevant because the space is gone. And I knew that was going to happen. Um, yeah. And that alone, you know, raises interesting questions about how to do this work. I, I begin this book with a with a rather audacious, uh, you know, assumption or question. Maybe I should say, you know, I'm approaching this material by asking, what would it mean? What does it mean to think about web pages, social media platforms as an alternative genre, a, a religious text, and maybe even as a place of sacred space and ritual practice? Um, you know, I, I do a lot of disclaimers in the introduction of this book, describing what this book is not, because I'm so I was so powerfully aware of what it wasn't. Uh, I mean, in a perfect world, I would have spent a lot more time interviewing the producers and consumers of these spaces, uh, looking at the ways in which these spaces are involving in, in, in you know online and then only later offline. But I began with the assumption that that's another project, a, a, a ethnography of various American Sufi Turuk um, is something I'd very much like to do. But I, I really wanted to think about web spaces as an end them themselves. What are they telling us about you know, self-imagination, community building, consumption patterns, public facing and, and, and private spaces, all those big questions. And I think the conclusion here is that at present, as presently constructed, American Sufi websites are mostly, you know, PR spaces, information and public relations, um, and that those spaces are really self-consciously aimed at multiple audiences, or external and internal. That's one of the the challenges of construction in these spaces and articulation in these spaces is, you know, who's your audience? Who are you trying to reach? And I think that many simultaneous audiences are being addressed in these virtual spaces. Uh, so we can talk about, you know, for, for Sufi practitioners themselves, these websites um, are, are useful. They become a kind of library of institutional history, an archive of the order's genealogy, a kind of handy manual for practices, and maybe most importantly, a tool to share with others. So if you're a Chisti Subri disciple, you tell your friend, you know, hey, check this webpage out. And by the way, if you want to come join us, you know, Zikr is Thursday night at eight o'clock. So it, it becomes a place, a, a, a library for 
making sense of and reminding oneself of the institutional history, the beliefs and practices. That's not the only audience. Um, I think these all of these Sufi websites are carefully looked uh, engaging non-Muslim audiences in a post 9-11 America in this context, Islamophobia raging. They're trying to orient Sufism, you know, in a broader story of Islamic history. They're trying to distinguish their Sufi communities from others, other groups, Sufi and not, to attract potential converts and allies and, and to make sense for a broad non-Muslim audience who they are and are not. And also, simultaneously, a third audience, other Muslims, you know, grounding Sufi piety and practice in Islamic piety and history. And clearly, many of these websites are defending, actively dis- defending Sufism against its critics, internal and external. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of Wahhabism, of Salafism, of um, terrorism, and trying to remind these multiple audiences who these Sufi groups are and are not. And in that process, much is sometimes erased and cleaned up. Some of the you know, divisions, the uh, struggles over genealogy, the fractures and fissures within and between Sufi communities gets erased since these are you know, public-facing sites. Um, another thing I'm trying to argue is that uh, these web pages mark a clear unambiguous boundary between online and offline world. It's the offline world that that leads and the online world follows for them. And again and again, I, I see these communities trying to use web spaces, virtual spaces, digital media to bridge these two worlds uh, and to, to, to get people to think about who they are and then get interested in joining them and, and coming back to the embodied lived experience of uh, everyday um, Sufi experience. So there's a lot happening simultaneously in these spaces. As I said, you know, it's the ritual space, the, the use of ritual, the, 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 the way in which ritual is mediated that is most complex and most fraught with anxiety. But I also think that there's a really serious reason to imagine and to anticipate that that Sufi communities in the United States, in Europe, and around the world will continue to engage these spaces. Um, there's a historical reason. I mean, you, you study, you know, 19th century history, and you see the way in which Sufis were absolutely uh, quick to take to print media technologies. Um, Carl Ernst and Muslim Nadi and others have documented the way in which, you know, Sufis in the colonial and post-colonial era were some of the earliest Muslim adopters. The printing press in, you know, 19th century South Asia, the sort of pamphlet wars that took place, Sufis were using printing press to translate classical works and in the process of translating and printing, establishing a kind of canon. They were also engaging in polemics with both Muslim groups and non-Muslim groups who were critical of the tradition. So there's a historical precedent here. There's every reason to think that Sufis will um, continue to play with and to experiment with and to adapt and adopt uh, digital media technologies. And I also get a bit artsy-craftsy at the end of the book by saying, you know, I, I would argue there's a, there's a there's a semantic space and Sufi practice, uh, longstanding, in which the virtual is real. Uh, dreams, visionary experiences are absolutely central to Sufi practice, absolutely crucial to the Chisti tradition that Inayat Khan first encountered in Gujarat. Um, and those spaces are places, dreams and visions, where the boundaries between the living and the dead, between Allah and humanity, uh, between prophets and saints and angels and terrestrial human beings, those veils fall away. And real tangible things come from those imaginary virtual spaces. So I'm simply suggesting there's reason to th- assume that Sufis will be inclined, more inclined to adopt and to participate in these virtual spaces and conversations as time goes by and the technology continues to improve. There's past precedent, and um, there's also a generational shift. I think Sufi masters understand, as you know, teachers do in a classroom, that 
it's helpful to meet people where they are and where the kids are in, in the 21st century is online. So um, you, it can't be the only place and the only space. And I don't think it ever will be, but I see every reason to anticipate increasing um, adoption of these technologies as they get better and better and faster and ubiquitous and more visceral and more uh, accessible. Um, but that's, you know, future predictions that uh, one should always be, <laughs> be wary of being too confident about. Yeah, no, but um, one of the things that I was really fascinated about in, in terms of the conclusion is, was this kind of idea of internal resources. And I think, um, I think about uh, this a lot in terms of the work that I do um, is also in terms of like authenticity, right? And so there's always a sense that when is it become too novel that it's therefore not as close as to tradition as possible and therefore is not a real thing. And I think a lot of people have this perception about of Sufism in America. There's like a legitimacy test that it needs to pass. And, um, and so I, you know, reading through the book, I kept thinking that, you know, the cyber, the cyber realm becomes another thing that is used as a test to say, well, this is real or not real. Um, but kind of the argument that you make at the end in terms of the internal resources that have historically existed within, I mean, most religious traditions, but with Sufism particularly, both in terms of maybe the esoteric language that is utilized but also in terms of how networks and um, um, transnationalism has influenced the spread of Sufism. So kind of envisioning that network system and uh, cyber realm was a really fascinating kind of image um, to kind of consider and then think about in terms of this question of legitimacy. I don't know if you have any thoughts about yeah, that. Absolutely. But, um, and, you know, we need another podcast. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the question of tradition is one that uh, I've heard explored in different uh, podcasts. Um, and of course, it's a massive question. I, like reality, I think tradition is a word that should always be put in quotation marks because it's always and everywhere and necessarily and unavoidably contested. It's interesting. I, I um, assigned parts of this book in my uh, course this semester. Shame, shameless of me. Um, I'm teach, I taught a, a class with 15 very bright undergraduate students on Islamic mysticism. Um, and we ended with conversations about web spaces and digital media, and they read selections of the book. And I was fascinated because their final papers, which I just finished grading yesterday, uh, a lot of them were very upset about what they saw happening in these spaces, especially you know, commodification, selling Sufism online. You know, we had spent the semester reading the classics or some of the classics, you know, the primary texts from the medieval era and through. We'd also read scholarly arc. Uh, poems and poetry and saw some film. And at the end, uh, as we go online and into these cyber spaces, I thought, okay, now they're swimming in their own waters. They're going to find this fascinating. And, and um, these paper and the papers were very good, but highly critical, uh, almost without exception, kind of a sense of unease among these students, most of whom were not Muslim, and most of whom had never taken a religion course before. That, you know, what's happening to, to tradition here? What's changing here? And I see that same anxiety among Sufi communities themselves. You know, if you, if you ask a, a, a Sufi sheikh in America um, or sheikh, uh, you know, what's up with the web space? A very common reaction is, oh, oh that's, that's the kids. I don't have much to do with that. That's not real Sufism. And then you observe these spaces and surf through these spaces and you see a great deal of time and energy and resources are being put into these spaces. So again, I, I did try to sort of highlight throughout the book moments of this discomfort, this anxiety, at, you know, saying it doesn't matter and then recognizing, wow, it seems to matter a lot. And these spaces are rapidly becoming infinitely more complicated, comprehensive and integrated. So that whole notion of tradition, how it's you know mediated and inscribed and performed is fascinating. You know, I would just end by saying that you know, I asked the question of my students, you know, what's new about new media? I mean, Rumi is writing in a very earthy, fleshy, provocative um, Persian in his time. And one of the you know scholars have argued that one of the ways that Sufism moved like water through many cultures and went global very early on in Islamic gate history is by accommodating itself to local 
vernacular cultures, vernacular literatures, vernacular poetic traditions, vernacular music and performative traditions. So Sufism was evolving and changing and making itself real in very different places and spaces all along. And what's really new about any of this? It's faster, it's ubiquitous, it's a new technology. Sufis are trying to reach new audiences and using different platforms to do that. Why should we be surprised? And what's new about it? So again, I end, I end where I begin with, with anxiety and open questions. My students are finding it discomforting that tradition is moving. And then we're having interesting conversations saying, you know, well, hasn't this been happening all along? And isn't it true of any religious tradition anywhere if it wants to survive and thrive and changing context, it has to change with the time and speak to people where they are in ways that are accessible. So I would argue the web is just another place. It cannot and does not in the current moment replace the tradition. It does not replace tradition with a capital T. It's another place where tradition is, you know, imagined where tradition is, um, you know, engaged and maybe where tradition is changed, but it's not new in and of itself. Fascinating. It's amazing. Um, As we wrap up our time together, I wonder if you could tell me, um, are you working on anything next? Are you taking a break? Um, Can we expect something from you? There's no such thing as a break. I mean, I'm continuing my work uh, trying against all odds to build our Center for Global Islamic Studies. And one of the things that we've done to sort of mark our space on campus and hopefully beyond is to decide we're going to be committed to to public scholarship and to publishing. So in this year has been a good year. Not Cyber Soupies came out and also uh, an edited volume that emerged from a 2016 conference that we had on campus, which explores the question of adab, of beautiful behavior for Sufis, for um, politics, for art and architecture, um, for social activism in South and Southeast Asia. So that edited volume is out um, through Bloomsbury Press. Um, and we're doing another one in the, in the, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, you know, given my own continued and growing interest in all things cyber and Islamicate, we're doing a conference, Cyber Muslims Mapping Islamic Networks in the Digital Age with an edited volume to follow. So that's my next project is to complete that conference and then look forward to moving towards an edited volume. I'm really excited because it's a very diverse group in, in every sense of the word, um, you know, graduate students to senior scholars, um, religionists, people from media studies, journalists, all looking at different uh, case studies of Islam, digital Islam in practice uh, across the globe. It's not, we're expanding the lens. It's not just about the, the U.S. context. So that's the next project. And then long term, um, I've you know, I've always wanted to get back in a more substantive, sustained way to South Asia. I've long been thinking about um, essentially doing what I did in Pakistan on the other side of the border, uh, uh, deep contacts in places like Ajmer Sharif and Nizamuddin Aliyah. I'd love to go and think about and, and do an ethno- on-the-ground ethnography of living Sufism in those spaces and to think about how these groups are, con- are you know, uh, committed to the continuity of tradition, but also dealing with the political now. That project, of course, has gotten infinitely more uh, difficult to imagine, much less do in the current political context. Uh, you know, the rise of Hindutva, the current Modi government, the ongoing crackdown on Muslim communities. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult space for scholars to be working in and around whatever their background. Um, you know, how do you get a research visa to work on uh, Indo-Muslim Sufi communities in this current context. So we'll see if that project happens. I also like to do an, a, a, a more traditional, there's that word again, traditional, traditional ethnography of any number of American Turuk, um, including the Inayati the organization. That's work TBD projects that are always on, ongoing and thinking, but um, need to sort of commit myself. But the next step is to continue the conversation about digital Islam with this Cyber Muslims Conference in spring. You're invited, and anyone listening would be more than invited April 13th to the 15th uh, at uh, the Lehigh campus, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. 
that all sounds exciting. And I have to say, and I've told you this before, I think, you know, I read your book as an MA student and this is what started my journey. So it's kind of a surreal experience having this podcast conversation with you. I would have never anticipated that as a, a young grad student. So thank you so much for your time um, and uh, for your exciting book. I know it's going to bring a lot of conversations and I look forward to more of your future work. Many thanks, Ravana. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk today and we'll look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much.